2: You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book.
3: Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing? Well, after my Easter egg revelation last week, thank you for bearing with me uh, with my honesty about that. Well, it serves me right because I got out the very last Easter egg when everyone was out of the house. And I thought, I want this cut very neatly in half rather than it all being in bits. Don't know why, I just wanted the Easter egg very neat in two halves. So I got the knife out and separated it. And yes, I've cut my hand. And how could I explain to my family that I cut my hand while being a greedy girl wanting this extra Easter egg. So it serves me right. I'm probably going to get sepsis from this now as we're being taught that keeping secrets and being greedy is not a good idea. But there we are. That's that's what's happening here. Oh my goodness. I have got some books to talk to you about today. So I'm just going to get straight into it. I've got some great ones. Let me talk you through them. Just prepare yourself for this. Quite a selection. So first of all, we have got Mark Billingham, The fabulous crime author, who's back to tell us about the first book in a new series called The Last Dance. Then we've got Alison Weir, who's the, well, she's a fabulous historian. She writes nonfiction and fiction. She's written a series of books all about Henry VIII's wives. And she's now written as a fiction book Henry VIII, The Heart and the Crown. There's a particular listener's question that I asked her that well, I won't forget that in a hurry. I'm also reviewing Don't Look Back, the new book by Joe Spain, The House in the Wood by Mark Dawson, and a manga graphic novel, Get Me Down with the Youth, Die Dark by, now, I can't even, I'm so bad at trying to pronounce his name, but Hayashida. And that's, that's the best you're going to get from me. That's quite embarrassing, isn't it? Anyway, let's get started straight away. So Mark Billingham, he's been on before and he always delivers, doesn't he? Let's let me tell you about this book. Here's the blurb. He's a detective, a dancer. He has no respect whatsoever for authority and he's the best hope Blackpool has for keeping criminals off the streets. Meet Detective Declan Miller. A double murder in a seaside hotel sees grieving Miller return to work to solve what appears to be a case of mistaken identity. Just why were two completely unconnected men taken out? With a distinctly loose relationship with reality and a new partner to deal with, can eccentric, offbeat Miller find answers where more traditional police have found only an impossible puzzle? And let's have Mark read the first few sentences.
4: The coloured lights from more than a million lamps seem to dance above the town's main street and their reflections shimmer on the surface of the Black Sea just beyond. On the street itself, a thousand neon signs dazzle and buzz and the slow-moving traffic has become a pulsating necklace of red and white beads. To the casual observer, gazing down from the top of the tower perhaps or from a penthouse apartment in one of the expensive blocks that have sprung up in recent years, this might be Las Vegas if that casual observer really squinted and had never been to Las Vegas. I
3: <laughs> love that. Oh, I, I say it every week, don't I? I say it every week, but I love hearing the books read by the author. It makes such a difference. I really enjoyed this book. I love getting into a new series because you just know that you're getting in at the first one and then there's more to read. I thought it was really well plotted, brilliant read. I mean, Mark Billingham never disappoints quality. Anyway, that is very, very good. Let's talk to Mark now. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Mark Billingham, whose latest truly fabulous book is called The Last Dance. Mark, welcome back.
4: Thank you for having me back.
3: Well, we had to. We had to discuss this (laughs) superb book. Let's start with the obvious basic question. Can you give us a summary of this book?
4: Well, The Last Dance is a, is a, well, it's the start of a new series, the first new series in, in 20 old years. I, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to write a different sort of book. You know, I've written 18 Tom Thorne novels now and, and a bunch of standalones, and I wanted to start a new character. Um, and this is a character I've been living with for a few years because I kind of created him for a television show that may or may not happen but while I'm waiting for the wheels of television to turn as slowly as they do I thought I'm just going to write these books so I kind of knew who Declan Miller was when I started writing The Last Dance which is more than I ever did about Tom Thorne to be honest, I never knew who he was so the books are very different in tone, he's still a detective he's a detective in the north of England, the book is set in Blackpool he's a detective sergeant with the Lancashire Constabulary but he's not your run of the mill detective he's a very different detective to Tom Thorne he is a man who's driven by grief he goes back to work after the murder of his wife too soon and he deals with grief i mean grief grief strikes people in all sorts of ways you know there's no template for grief and he deals with it in shall we say a rather idiosyncratic way he kind of doesn't care anymore he doesn't i mean he certainly cares about crime and about the victims of crime he has an astonishing amount of empathy with victims but his grief is masked by A sort of irreverence I hope the books are funny the books are still dark I'm still writing about death and pain and loss and violence. but I've come to very firmly believe that humor and seriousness are not mutually exclusive so I you know there are moments in the book where I'm I'm trying to make you laugh there's no question about it so yeah detective with jokes
3: (laughs) but it's not cozy crime it's definitely not that
4: no 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 it's not cozy and it's and it's it's a comic novel as opposed to being a comedy novel. If you can see the difference, um, yeah, no, it, it's really not cosy, not cosy at all. That's I think that's a term that's thrown around, <laughs> you know, much too easily these days.
3: Yeah, that's true. It's interesting to me then that this character, Detective Miller had been in your head for some time, because usually you you write a book, a crime book, uh, authors in general, and then the character might stay in their head and convince them to write another one. Yeah. Yet you came to this book already having spent time with Detective Miller. Did that alter... The writing process.
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it made it a joy to write. Actually, I mean, not just that I had an awful lot of the plot for this first book in my head because I'd been working on umpteen drafts of television scripts that that broadly broadly used the same story. I was able to write incredibly quickly. I've written two. You know, I've written two Miller novels. The second one has is, is been delivered. So, uh, I, knowing who he was, as I say, it was a completely different process to when I wrote about Tom Thorne, who I just whacked on the page because I needed a copper, and I have been getting to know him book book on book at the same speed as the reader. Whereas Miller is here, he is not that I know everything about him. You know, I still want him to be able to surprise me so that he can surprise the readers. But I certainly knew enough about him to 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 have a damn good start at the first book.
3: And the TV company that you're working with, potentially, yes, are they aware yes. of this book or do we need to whisper and keep very quiet?
4: <laughs> no, 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 it's all very strange. I mean, so, you know, as I say, it started, you know, I was, it was, I was approached by the BBC, I'm not being coy about it, I was approached by the BBC to write an original detective drama for a well-known comedian. So I did and I started doing this and spent a while doing it. Um, and I should say that comedian is not in my head, that comedian is not Miller is not Miller on the page. I actually now have somebody else in my head. But yeah, I mean it, it it's the the production company and the BBC both both were very happy for me to go away and write the books, so that's what I've done.
3: And obviously the title The Last Dance when you read the book there are uh, you do get the good idea of where that title came from, but again was that the title in your mind from the very beginning or was it on reflection? No.
4: No, 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 no. And it certainly wasn't the title of the TV series. Um, you know, dance dance plays a very central role in the book, both in in Miller's life and and in what happened to his wife. They were very, very keen amateur ballroom dancers, very, very good amateur ballroom dancers. And Miller has his own little team of kind of Baker Street irregulars who are the this sort of ragtag group of people that he dances with once a week who are a pair of old retired coppers, uh, and this elderly couple who are florists and uh, a sort of young computer nerd and they all go to the pub after the dance sessions and talk about Miller's case the ongoing case which is a very strange one that he that he that he picks up as soon as he goes back to work so yeah they they provide a lot of the the sort of comedy as well
3: and it must be interesting having written the screenplay to then write the book because some people say that they were told by different writing schools, if they're having trouble writing, pare it down as if it's a screenplay to get the, the momentum. Yeah. And so instead of paring it down, you then had to build or put the flesh on it. Yeah,
4: no, so I had a screenplay. I mean, I had umpteen drafts of a screenplay. But, you know, they are they are very different beasts. And, of course, what, what I'm doing in the book that I could never do for a TV script is be in Miller's head. You know, you're inside Miller's head. You know, on TV, all you've got is what a character says and what they do, unless you've got a horrible cheesy voiceover or something. But for 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 the for the books, I had to delve very deeply into Miller's extremely twisted, odd mind, which I've which I've thoroughly enjoyed. Like I said, I've written two books. So I've spent the last couple of years writing Miller books now, and uh, and uh, you know. I'm not looking forward to stopping, actually. I'm going to, you know, I, I will, because the next book I write will be a Thorn book, but I can't I can't wait to get back to Miller. I'm very fond of him.
3: And I'm interested because you've written standalones, like The Rabbit Hole, you've written the series. Where does your heart lie? I get the sense it's in a series, but... Well, yeah,
4: I mean, having said that, you mentioned Rabbit Hole, rabbit Hole, which is a book I'm, I'm inordinately fond of.
3: I love that book.
4: Yeah, I, I, I was always a fan of series fiction in crime. You know, the first the first things I read were were series detectives, and you know, to I, to have an established one now is a, is a, is a, a thing I'm very very happy about. And I shall certainly keep writing about Tom Thorne as long as I'm interested in him. But I'd like to see, you know. If Miller's got legs, I mean, obviously I'm not, you know, I'm not a a young whippersnapper anymore. So I'm probably not going to be right. I'm not going to write as many Miller books as there are Thorne books. But I'd certainly like to be writing about him for a few years. Yeah.
3: But it does seem to be with crime. If you've got a good set of interesting characters, it's more likely to be a series.
4: Yeah. and, and, And at the end of the day, it is the character. It's the character you remember. You know, a month after you've read The Last Dance, you won't, remember, you won't remember the plot, you won't, might not remember who the killer was, but but hopefully you'll you'll think about Miller and you'll remember Miller. You know, that's the same with all the series characters I like. You know, going right back to Sherlock Holmes, I can't remember all the intricacies of the plots of those Sherlock Holmes stories, but it's the character that stays with you. It's the, it's the character you engage with, and that's what remains. I mean, you know, uh, me and a bunch of other crime writers were... were gathered at a bar at some festival a few years ago, and we said, listen, if, the, if a bomb goes off in this place tonight and we're all wiped out, you know, the fans of our books, you know, and this is, you know, me, Ian Rankin, Michael Connolly, whoever, the fans of the books all go, oh, that's a shame. But as long as somebody carried on writing Harry Bosch and John Rebus and Tom Thorne, people would go, oh, it's all right. It's the, it's the characters people like, not the, not the writers, as it should be. <laughs>
3: It is but I think as readers you know we hold authors up to be our rock stars and therefore there would be some sadness
5: if... yeah
4: there'd, there'd be a bit of a huh. <laughs> I mean you know there are still people there are still people writing James Bond novels and Miss Marple novels, novels and Hercule Poirot novels and You know, I'm not saying I'd ever want that to happen. I would certainly never want to farm my series out as as one or two other writers have done. No, I'd never want to do that. Um, But it was we were only kind of joking. But it was we 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 were just trying to shine a light on the fact that it's the characters that matter at the end of the day.
3: Although, if you're all crowded together in a bar and you see Anthony Horowitz walking around with, you know, a gun or a bomb, looking for more words. Run! Yes,
4: exactly. For God's sake, run. God, it's Horowitz! Run! <laughs> He'll
3: just want to take over writing everyone's books.
4: Anthony, if you're watching this, we're, I'm just kidding. Right.
3: Uh, let's talk about publication day, because you've gone through a few. What does it look like yeah. from one minute past midnight to one minute to midnight? What what What's happened?
4: I mean it's it's always nerve-wracking and it's always exciting and the day it stops being is when you should give up you know if if you if you if you're blasé about that stuff you know it's a big deal you've spent a year working on this book and and publication is very important so you're obviously very excited and you might have a glass or something uh, on that day and and you start immediately getting feedback from readers you get feedback from those readers who who will read it on the first day which is great, which is kind of, you know, It's you have mixed emotions because you kind of go, well, I, I'm hugely flattered that you spent the whole day reading this book. But you're also thinking, I took a year. This book took me a year. And you've read it in eight hours. And then, of course, you wait. Books come out on a Thursday. And you wait till the following Tuesday for a call from your publisher because Tuesday is when the bestseller list info comes in. And, you know, at the end of the day, that that stuff does matter, of course. It matters. And it matters very much with this because it's the start of a new series and I'm a writer of commercial fiction and at the end of the day the readers will make the decision about how long Miller will last. You know, Thorn has lasted 23 years because people keep buying Thorn books. I hope they want to buy the Miller books. I hope they enjoy the books. So those first few days are pretty nerve-wracking. Pretty nerve-wracking. And the weird thing is, of course, the whole process only lasts a few weeks and then it's kind of... then it fades away and you're into something else. But, but, of course, you're, you're on the road promoting that book. I'll be doing events at, in libraries and bookshops and at festivals all the way through sort of May, June, July and through into the summer. And that's the bit I really love. You know, the, book, the books are the hard work. This is the fun. The fun bit is showing off and of talking about them, you know.
3: And the book signings, the queues for your book signings are always pretty long.
4: No, not a no. You'd be amazed. You'd be amazed. Sometimes they're really, really not. You can never You can never prejudge these things you can never prejudge whether an event is going to be good whether a festival is going to be good i mean if you've done it you know you know you're always going to have a good time at the edinburgh book festival or the harrogate crime writing festival you know you know they're well established but just turning up to something you've never done before is always a bit of a you know shot in the dark and see what happens
3: you mentioned the harrogate crime writing festival yes. well I put on the Facebook group for this podcast that I was talking to you today, and I have a question for you about that. Ah, So Jan has said, If you were not Quizmaster on the Grand Crime Writers Quiz at Harrogate, Mm -hmm. but a participant, would you help or hinder your team? (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> I, I'd like to think, I'd, I'd like to think I'd help. Uh, I mean, yeah, no, it's one of the big regrets is that I never get to do the Harrogate quiz because I'm always up on stage doing the, uh, with Val doing the questions. I love a quiz. I mean, I flipping love taking part in a quiz. I'm doing one online tonight. So I like to think, I'd like to think I, I would do OK. Although, you know, when you're answering questions on crime fiction, that's when the pressure's really on because everybody's looking at you going, well... This is what you do. You must know. And I'm going, I can't remember who yeah. Hercule Poirot was. I'd like to think I'd, I'd be all right. I, I could write the answers down. I've got quite nice handwriting.
3: <laughs> that could be your job, yeah. head of handwriting. I just wonder if you sometimes yearn to write a different genre, if sci-fi, romance, punk is something you want to do. You know, Is there ever a genre that you wish you could move into
4: Not really. I mean I I'm a huge fan of crime fiction. You know, I'm a reader of crime fiction and I and I and I want to write it. I mean I've dabbled in other stuff. I've done some YA stuff that was sort of fantasy-ish. Uh, A few years back, I've done a a straight-down-the-line comedy music book called Great Lost Albums that I wrote with Martin Waits and David Quantic and Stav Charest, which nobody bought at all, but which is still a book I I remain fiercely proud of. Uh, No, I don't think so. I I mean, I'd try. I'm trying to write some finely wrought piece of literary fiction, and after about ten pages, I'd have to kill someone. i just, I'd have to.
3: Well, you could put that in the crime book, I suppose. If you could go back and change one thing about your writing career... What would
4: it be? Well, I sometimes I sometimes think it would be to have started earlier, but I don't, you know, because by the time the first Thorn book came out, I was 40. You know, and a lot of writers have started yeah, a lot sooner than that. So part of me thinks, oh, if I'd started when I was 30, I could have another 10 novels under my belt by now. But I'm glad I did all that other stuff, messing about being an actor and a stand-up comic and... You know i I'd had a, a bunch of experience, none of it none of it useful, none of it like a proper job or anything. No, I'm glad I did that stuff, uh, Philip. I think. I'd change things about about what I wrote. You know, I wish I'd done some of the some things differently in those first few books. I'd have made Thorn younger for a start. I'd have made him younger, uh, whereas I made him the same age as me, and that caught up with me rather fast. You know, I've had to go, go back and I do my own audiobooks for for, for Thorn anyway. So I've had to go back and re-record some of those early books, and that's quite chastening. To read out loud for three days something you wrote 23 years ago is a bit like, oh, my God. And you can't change it. It's too late to change it. But, you know, you make your mistakes early on, hopefully. Get them out of the way.
3: Can you ad-lib the book at all and hope they don't notice? that you've?
4: <laughs> no, because there's a producer on the other side of the glass following the script very carefully, and he'll stop you and go... What was, what was that? And you just I thought I'd change that because <laughs> I, I didn't like that sentence very much. It was tough. You've got to stick with it.
3: <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, do you have to do anything to get into the writing zone? I mean, presumably not dress as a policeman, but is there anything that helps you get in the middle?
4: <laughs> that would be so weird, just putting putting a tall hat on and going, evening all? Right, now I can start. Yeah. Um, no, not really, not really. you know there is no there's there are no set hours, there are no set hours. I mean, so for the next for the next couple of months, as i said i'm I'm on the road more or less, and I can't write on I just can't do that i so I can't write in hotel rooms or on trains or anything like that it'll be it'll be in my head, and that's the thing the book is always in your head, so you're always writing something you're working stuff out mm-hmm. when you're having a shower when you're walking around the supermarket, whatever. But actual writing, there's no set routine, there's no times, there's no just whenever you you know need to get something down on the screen. And no, I don't need to. I, I think I write better late at night. I think I write better when it's dark outside and the house is quiet. You know, for practical reasons, you know, there's not emails aren't arriving. I'm not on Twitter every five minutes, and I'm not looking out the window as I am doing now and going, "Oh, weather's a bit rubbish." Always oh, had a woodpecker. You know, I, it's it's dark and I can focus a bit better.
3: Well, we come to the last question, which is the most crucial one on this podcast, Mark. Okay. And the question is, what biscuit was powering the writing of the last dance?
4: Biscuit for me, and it. Do you know what? Biscuits do play quite a large part in Miller's life there are there are there are probably more references to biscuits in this book than than (laughs) and in the next one that's funny you should have biscuits he's he's a bit obsessed with biscuits is Miller (laughs) as am I as any right thinking person should be Miller could go to the house where a house where there'd been a multiple slaying and there were you know you know, forensic experts everywhere and blood splattered all, and all Miller would be going, where are the biscuits? Miller would just want to know where the biscuits <laughs> were, what the variety of biscuits was. As I said, he stopped caring. For me, there is only, do you know what? The king of biscuits is very simply the McVitie's digestive, the plain digestive. It's a fabulous biscuit and the best dunker. It is the best dunker. There was There was an article in the paper only a couple of days ago saying the best dunker was a Jaffa cake, which I think is ridiculous. You can keep dunking a Jaffa cake, Right, and keep dunking it, and it and it won't fall apart. But who wants to keep dunking a biscuit? I want to dunk digestive biscuit. Few yeah. seconds, hot tea. boom.
3: A jaffa cake is not going. Its flavour isn't going to be enhanced by coffee or tea. That's
4: no, 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 no. It, for me and the digestive. Of course, if you're in such a mood, put a piece of cheese on a digestive. It's it's a w- what? Oh no, it's a it's oh yeah, it has so many uses. A digestive biscuit. You can have, it, like I say, c- cup of tea, plate of digestive, can't go wrong, but put a slice of cheese on a digestive. It will change your life.
3: You know, when I woke up this morning, I didn't know today was going to be a day of such revelations.
4: <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen.
3: Well, we have to end it on such a high note. On that bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mark Billingham, whose latest book is The Last Dance. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Coming up one more amazing author interview and i mean the author's amazing not my interviewing and more book reviews
2: one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes
5: nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt
2: until you tried it on same goes for your health care code buttery exclusions apply see site for details
5: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile With the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down So to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless ready to get 30 30 to get 30 to get 20 20 20 you get 20 20 to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch
1: Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
3: Right, let's get stuck straight into this splendid, splendid book. Sorry for the noise of me moving the books. Henry VIII, The Heart and the Crown. Alison Weir, I mean, she's... Uh, incredible. I love the books that she writes. They always give me so much information. And I love reading fiction books by someone who knows what they're talking about historically. I find them much easier to read than non-fiction books. And I learn so much. And I really get involved in the characters. And this one is absolutely splendid. Let me read you the blurb on this. From a second son not born to rule to the man and king he became. In grand royal palaces, Prince Harry grows up dreaming of knights and chivalry and the golden age of kings that awaits his older brother. But Arthur's untimely death sees Harry crowned King Henry of England. As his power and influence extends, so commences a lifelong battle between head and heart, love and duty. Henry rules by divine right, yet his prayers for a son go unanswered. The future of his great dynasty depends on an heir and the crown weighs heavy on a king with all but his one true desire. Splendid. Absolutely splendid. Let's hear Alison read a first few sentences from the book. Prologue. He was dying, he knew it. No one had
6: dared tell him and why would they when to predict the king's death was treason? But he could feel it in his bones in the bulk of his failing body. Not so bulky now since his flesh was hanging on him. He had not wanted food these past few days. Not so long ago, it seemed, he had been young and full of hope, burgeoning with life and promise, and tragedy had struck. Even now, remembering prodded the womb to which time had brought insensibility. From a distance of forty-four years, he could recall, as if it were yesterday, the soft velvet of his mother's counterpane, damp and spoiled beneath his cheek. He had cried for hours. Mother, His dearest mother was dead. It had been the most hateful, dreadful news broken to him by Mrs. Luke, his old nurse. Not, thankfully, by father, who was too broken by his own grief. Harry could not have coped with witnessing the king's distress. He had enough to bear. He had wept and wept on Mrs. Luke's broad bosom, and now, aware that great boys of eleven were not supposed to give way to womanish tears, he struggled to compose himself and went to find his sisters, who were sitting desolately on the rug before the fire in Mother's bedchamber. He stared in horror at the bed, which had already been hung and draped with the black velvet of morning. Mother would never sleep here again. He would never more hear her sweet voice, feel her gentle arms around him, her golden boy. How truly she had loved him. How desperately sad to think of the empty years ahead without her. He could not damp down the great swell of sorrow that was rising within him. He sank to his knees by the bed and buried his head
3: in his hands. What a book. What an incredible book. It's a yeah, as, as super as the other ones, I thought. Just great. We need to go and talk to Alison now. I would just say that the Wi-Fi gods were not helping us on the day. And it was really hard to, you know, when sometimes you're having a conversation and you start talking and the other person started talking, or the, there's quite a delay. So just forgive us with this. But Alison was such a star. She just carried on. And there were questions to ask and she had answers to give and it was splendid. So let's hear from Alison now. Well, it is my hugest, hugest pleasure to welcome to the podcast today the incredibly well-known Alison Weir, whose latest superb book is called Henry VIII, The Heart and the Crown. Alison Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Philippa. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I had to talk to you about this spectacular book, and I start with a really obvious, basic question. But we have to start somewhere. Can you just summarise this book for us?
6: Yes, I've just written a series. Uh, recently, written a series of six novels, the Six Tudor Queens series, and each one is written from the sole point of view of that of, of Henry's wives, Henry's six wives. And it occurred to me that, well, perhaps Henry should have his say. And so this is Henry VIII's story from the age of 11 until his death from Henry's point of view. And it's a rather different point of view, as you can imagine.
3: And what was so interesting, because for many years, we've heard a lot about Henry VIII, so it was really refreshing to get your books about the wives and their individual stories. And now to learn that what we thought we knew about Henry VIII isn't necessarily the case is um has been quite a revelation
6: really oh yes I'm, I'm pleased to hear that because we we have in our image some of us have in our heads the image of charles lawton as henry VIII, you know ch- chopping and changing mm-hmm. wives with great lethal alacrity and throwing chicken bones over his shoulder and this is not the real henry at all this is a thoughtful educated man uh, and an egotist who is raised to a unique position in life he thinks he's set apart from ordinary mortals And he has in his mind an ideal of queenship embodied in his mother. He has also the the ability to select able and intelligent, clever men to serve him. Um, All is set fair for a good reign and then things start to fall apart.
3: And when you started writing this book, did you know exactly what you were going to put in it and how you were portraying Henry VIII? Or as you were writing it, did more research come to light and it took you in a different direction?
6: I didn't exactly know what I was going to include. I was fictionalising a historical text or various historical texts of my own, because I've done a lot of research on Henry over the years. Quite a few new strands of research and, and emerged when I was writing the Six Tudor Queen series. What I wanted to do was bring them into Henry VIII's own life. And I, there, there was so much I could have included. In fact, most of it was a challenge to see who do you, which storylines do you follow, which storylines do you just hint at or just pass over briefly. Um, so I focused. I didn't just want it to be a book about the wives. I wanted it to be a book about the other people, the other important people in Henry's life, Cardinal Wolsey, uh, Sir Thomas More, Thomas Cromwell, and the King's Fool, Will Summers. And they all have quite a large part to play. So the, the wives, I hope you know, occupy their proper space in the book. But this is about Henry the Man. And, and there was, as I say, it was, it was exciting to go back to this every day and thinking, what am I going to find today that I can include in the book? What don't I need?
3: What I love is that you, you take fact and then you spin it into a, a tale as fiction that we can all... Understand and sort of relate to, but is it? It must be very hard to take fact and then turn it into fiction because presumably you want everything to be accurate and yet you are building flesh on from your words.
6: I'm well aware I'm doing that. Um, accuracy is very important, I think, and where the facts are there, I have used them. It's where they're not when where we don't have the the evidence. There we don't have the backstory. We don't have motives, emotions, private 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 lives, sex lives, that kind of thing. And that's where imagination and creativity come in. And also sometimes you're you're wondering how a person got from one stage in their life to another when it doesn't seem logical, and you have to, and you don't have the evidence. So therefore, you have to find a bridge. And, and so, this is always a challenge. It's even more of a challenge when you're writing about someone as famous and iconic as Henry VIII. And I really built up to starting this novel and thinking of a way in, but starting with his relationship with his mother, his grief for her death, and that informs what happens later on. And that was a good way in. But I'm constantly aware that, you know, what you make up in regard to a fictional character who was based on a character who really lived, must be credible in the context of what is known about that character. So I do care very much about accuracy.
3: When you finished writing this book, did Henry or any of his wives from the previous books really, I don't want to use the term haunt you, but stay with you and linger with you?
6: Yes, they do, because you've lived with them for so long. They're in your head. When you're trying to get into the head of a historical personage and you've written you've written intensively for several months, of course they do stay with you. And then you might have a little break and you might go back and then you might read over your book, you'll edit your book. You see it from a slightly different perspective and then you're more objective because you've come away from it. And then you're in the hands of an experienced editor, as I've been fortunate to be.
3: And when you are approaching the research, and particularly for this book... Are there particular places you go to or do you just start afresh with what you're looking at?
6: The research has all been done. It was done for previous non-fiction books, so I have built on that. I've also built on the new research that I did for the six Tudor queens because I published a a joint biography of them in 1991 and I knew it was out of date. Um, I myself have done more research since. All that was incorporated. And I've done more research even since then. A lot of people have been working in this field, so I I, up, I updated that biography of the six wives of Henry VIII. And one day I hope it's going to be republished in its new form because it's been but re researched and rewritten. Uh, so I've got a very different narrative and a, a different view of Henry in certain respects.
3: Gosh, how interesting! And when you've been writing it, do you? see the figures in front of you as if you were watching a film or do you hear their voices or is it literally you just see the words and the words speak to you?
6: I see them and I'm, I'm imagining how they're reacting to the situation in which they find themselves. And sometimes, of course, I actually had to re, re, rework scenes in the books on the six Tudor queens because I wanted to see those particular scenes from Henry's point of view. And it's a very different perspective. That's quite a nice thing. I enjoy doing that turning it round, as it were. But yes, I do actually see it in my head. I don't hear the voices so much. It just flows.
3: And were you keen to surprise us? Because we all think we know about Henry VIII. So was that another driver for this
6: it was. It's more. I wanted to present a more nuanced portrait of Henry VIII. I wanted people to see him as he as he was. I, I did. A, I brought out a book in two thousand and one called Henry VIII: King and the Court, and it was a study of Henry the man, Henry the king, how and 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 his court and how it operated, and his, I say his private life. He didn't have much of a really private life because he was attended all the time. But in the minutiae of his daily life. We can see so much of the hidden man. And I wanted to bring this out in fiction. And and that's with, with all these details that make Henry human. And he was a human being. He did have, but he had failings. And at the end of his life, he acknowledged that too. Um, and a lot of people just say, oh, he's a horrible man. He was a monster. He was a tyrant. Well, he wasn't a tyrant. He might have acted in some ways, apparently tyrannically, but he acted within the law. And yes, he could be a monster. He could but well, you've got to see it from his perspective, and when you look at something from his uh, from a, your subject's perspective, you get a rather different view. And so I hope that, that it will help people to understand Henry VIII more, not see him as a caricature.
3: And when you're starting a new book, is your preference to write it as non-fiction or fiction?
6: No, I mean, if they're two div- completely different disciplines. Mm and i literally start with this historical text and i fictionalize it as i go through discarding material i don't want and i have to ask myself because this book is only from henry's point of view um would he have known this how would he have known this and so and so you discard a lot of material and then a certain different different story approaches it emerges rather and, and so but for for the nonfiction you research into into, a, into a, an outline and and then the book become it sort of evolves from that. Uh, for for fiction, I'm just I'm just fictionalising this text, <laughs> and I might stop off and do
3: research on the web. And you have very loyal readers. I mean, we're talking today. Your book was published yesterday, and yet already people have devoured it and yeah. posting reviews. I mean, it's in it's and it's not a short book. It's a wonderful book that you can spend time with.
6: Yes, it is a, I was quite surprised when I saw it in print, actually. I didn't realise it was going to be so large. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, literary festivals do seem to be a thing of this time. Yes, some have been going for for decades, but there seems to be an explosion in the number. And again, that must take your time up in terms of pulling you away from your work.
6: It does, but I love doing them. It's so lovely to be let out from your screen, to, to engage with people who share a common interest is passion for history. And I love that. And I also think they're a great, they're a very affordable form of entertainment. So many ideas coming together. They bring communities together, as do bookshops. They, they run events too. And um, I, I'd love to take part in this.
3: Well, even for those very loyal followers who have seen you at literary festivals and got their book signed by you, a question that I have is what fact do your most loyal followers not know? Is there something that would surprise us about you? About me? Yes. <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> the one thing that always
6: comes to mind is, yes, I, I worked on a rock biography.
3: <laughs> oh, really? In my spare time. How interesting. Tell us more.
6: I ran my own school at one time as well.
3: Yep. There we go. These are the facts, people. These, these are the facts. Well, when... I knew that you were going to come on the podcast. I put a message on the Facebook group for the podcast and said, right, Alison is very kindly coming on the podcast. What questions have you got for her? And um, I've shortlisted two. The the first one is from Jan, who obviously posted this question before the book was published. So she hadn't been able to read it yet. So her question obviously is answered as you read it. But I'll still raise it because it's an interesting one. And she says, was Henry VIII driven mad with his leg ulcer uh, and then became murderous or was he nasty before. You can see the deterioration in Henry's character as a
6: progression, a sort of progression um, as he grows older. And its I don't think he was actually mad in any way. I think he, he suffered a lot and I think he became much more frustrated and suspicious as he grew older and more, more wary of treason. And uh, he was a secretive, become a secretive person by then. You can trace this natural progression right from his youth, almost, when he, at the time he became king, there was a ruthlessness in him. And, uh, but I think the people's opinions of him really began to crystallise during the time he's trying to divorce Catherine of Aragon. Uh, when, when he starts to crush the opposition and in 1534, he has a nun who's prophesied against him and some of her followers hanged. And that's the first blood that's shed. In the great matter, as it was called, this the, the divorce case, and I think you can see this coming along. It, it's frustration that changes Henry. It makes him what it what he what he became. Frustration at not having a son. Frustration at having to hold off his passion for Anne Boleyn. Frustration at Catherine of Aragon's obstinacy in not agreeing to an annulment. Frustration at the Pope for uh, for 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 blocking that annulment for political reasons. And I think you can see this frustration building up in Henry. He's getting more and more bitter
3: more and more dangerous. There we go, Jan. That's a perfect answer to that question. Now, the the other question is from Mark, and this is one given in humour, Alison, so bear with me with this question. Okay. His question is, of all the Plantagenet and Tudor monarchs, who would you snog, marry and avoid? Oh my God, who would I snog, Okay i um, no, you really are to... It's a difficult one.
6: I don't want to go public on some of this. Mary. <laughs> <laughs> certainly not Henry the Um or Edward the Fourth. Or Richard the Avoid Edward the Second week. Henry the Second would probably be a good, uh, a bit dangerous too. A lot of them are quite dangerous. Yeah. Edward the First perhaps would have been a, a, a. He was a he was a wonderful husband to two wives. So maybe Edward the Avoid as I said, Edward the II, Second, Richard the Third. That's as far as I can go. I don't want it going all over the internet.
3: What I say. <laughs> No, we don't want that as a headline in in anything. No, thank you for taking that in the humour. It, it was meant. Absolutely, so thank you. <laughs> when you're or reading books yourself to relax, do you tend to read more fiction or non-fiction?
6: I have three books on the go at any one time. Two of two are non-fiction, and one which I read in bed and on trains is fiction. Wow! And I I I, a, I love love reading. So I'm reading, for example, at the moment I'm reading a book on on, on Queen Mary, and I'm reading i I'm 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 in the middle of books. So I'm changing. I'm just trying to think what I'm actually going to be reading next. Um, Tracy Borman's new book on um, Elizabeth First and Anne Boleyn, The Mother and Daughter Who Changed History. Mm. There's another one. And I'm reading one of Lisa Jewell's novels. I love Lisa Jewell's books. I like the best noir noirs, Psychological Thrills.
3: And uh, would you ever like to write in that genre yourself or is that one strictly for reading? I wouldn't mind. I'd, I'd like to write in the supernatural genre.
6: And I've got a, you know, I'm fascinated by ghosts and anything supernatural, and uh, and I would really like, to, you know, I'd love to do something like that. I've written a collection of ghost stories, and I do hope they'll be published one day. I'm not sure how I'd know I'd know how to construct a Oh my goodness, that just sounds wonderful. Well, they're mostly modern ghost stories, but i it would I think it would probably Oh no we'd love that Alison. Oh, okay, okay, I'll tell my agent. I'm seeing him on Monday talking about the next books.
3: <laughs> well, and my question was going to be what's next? For those who have already devoured the Heart and the Crown, um what would what can they look forward to next? Well, I've just finished the third book, The Heart and the Crown is the second in the
6: Tudor Rose trilogy, the first one was Elizabeth of York, The Last White Rose. And the third one is going to be about Henry's daughter, Mary I, Queen of Sorrows. That's out in May next year. And then I'm finishing the last book in my non-fiction quartet on England's medieval queens, Queens at War. That will be out at the end of next year.
3: Well, that's fantastic. Now, Alison, we come to the last question, which is in some respects the most important question on this podcast. So prepare yourself. Right. And the question is, what biscuit was powering the writing of The Heart and the Crown? What is your biscuit of choice? None of them. (laughs) I try not to do that.
6: I don't eat biscuits when I'm writing. I might just have one cup. I have a very light lunch. I have one cup of tea in the afternoon. And if I'm very stressed, my husband might put a glass of wine on the desk. So that's it. I don't eat biscuits while I'm writing.
3: (laughs) A biscuit-free zone. Wow, there we go. I stop working, and go out and walk. Oh, so walking is your sort of release, your energy giver after a long day.
6: Walk in the morning and then the afternoon I do body strengthening exercises and go on the exercise bike after I finish work in the afternoon. The
3: evenings are mine. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I can't wait to hear of more people enjoying The Heart and The Crown, every single wonderful page of it. Alison Weir, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Philippa, for having me. I have enjoyed it so much. Very good. Now, the next book is Don't Look Back by Joe Spain. I read this on my Kindle. Get me. i have very kind of had that from NetGalley to review. And let me read you the blurb of this one. For one week, everything in Luke Miller's life is perfect. Surprised with a belated honeymoon by his wife, Rose, he's had seven days with her in a Caribbean paradise. It's more than he ever thought he'd deserve. But as they pack their bags, Rose breaks down confessing that on the day they left London, a violent man from her past tracked her down and broke into their home. He wasn't expecting her to fight back and in her terror, Rose killed him. Now there's a dead body in Luke's apartment and only one person he can think to turn to. Mickey Shields never expected to hear from Luke again, not after he disappeared the first time. Luke knows Mickey can't deny a woman who needs help, so she promises she'll deal with things. She'll make sure Rose doesn't have to keep running. But it turns out some lies are too big to run from. And let's read the first few sentences. All is not lost. The unconquerable will. The words of the epic poem fill Luke's head as he walks on the soft white sand, grimacing as he reminds himself that, today, paradise is lost, normality beckons. Uh, I mean, what I love about Jo's books is that when you read the blurbs of them, you immediately think, well, how is she going to get out of this? How is she going to weave a story that comes up with an explanation as to what's happened, hooks you in, draws you in? And that's what she continues to do. It moved quickly. I wanted to find out what happened and uh, yeah, just another of her very good thrillers. Bravo, Joe Spain. So the next one is called The House in the Woods by Mark Dawson. How did I hear about this? But why have I not read Mark's books before? He's got so many books published with really good reviews. I don't know why I've missed this before. But anyway, I was just looking. I would had a notification that the new Richard and Judy shortlist had been announced. And this book was on there. And I went to my library app for the audiobook and the book was available on there. And it's really interesting because this book was published a few years ago and yet it's on the Rich and Judy shortlist. And I thought they only put on books that have literally just been published now. So I'm intrigued by that. I'm not judging. That's fine. I'm glad it's been selected because otherwise I might not have heard about it and blah, blah, blah. And here we are. This is a brilliant book. Let me Let me read you the blurb first of all. Four murders, two detectives, one mystifying crime. It's Christmas Eve and DCI Mackenzie Jones is called to a murder at a remote farmhouse. Ralph Mallander believes his father lies dead inside. When three more bodies are discovered, it's clear a festive family gathering has turned into a gruesome crime. At first, it seems like an open and shut case. A murder-suicide committed by Ralph's volatile brother, Cameron. Then new evidence makes Max suspect the man who reported the crime is in fact the perpetrator. But Mac isn't the only one with a stake in the case. Private investigator Atticus Priest has been hired to get Ralph acquitted. That means unearthing any weaknesses in Mac's evidence. Irrascible, impatient and unpredictable, Atticus has weaknesses of his own. Mac knows all about them because they share a past, both professionally and personally this time round however they aren't on the same side and as atticus picks up the loose ends of the case everything starts to unravel in a way neither of them could ever have predicted let's do first few sentences Detective Chief Inspector Mackenzie Jones was peeling potatoes and listening to Bing Crosby when her phone started to ring. She'd been preparing tomorrow's dinner for the last two hours. Andy had offered to do the meal, just like he usually did, but she had told him she wanted to do it. She wasn't as good a cook as he was and, not full of confidence that she would be able to put it off, she had bought a meal box from HelloFresh after seeing one of their ads on Facebook. She had a turkey, all the vegetables and sauces and a booklet of instructions that even she could follow. She had selected her Christmas playlist on Spotify and had found, to her surprise, that she had enjoyed herself more than she had expected. This is a great book and it's the first of a series and there's already another two books in the series out there. How this has happened, I don't know. As I say, how I've missed Mark Dawson up to now. Shame on me. Am I rectifying it? Yes, I am. Do the library have the other books? No, of course they don't. But am I going to get them? Yes, I am. Just brilliant. What you want in a crime book. Really good. Bravo. And then the last book is my let's try and pretend we're not an adult manga. I was looking for something different. I was looking for a book that's the start of a series. Some people really get into collecting their manga. And I saw this die dark and thought, well, this sounds interesting. Let's read you the blurb. Zaha Sanko's body has great and terrible powers. They say that possessing his bones will grant you any wish, even the desire to become ruler of the universe. But Sanko is still a teenage dude. Jude? Come on, Philippa, you can do it. But Sanko is still a teenage dude with his own life, and he isn't about to let every monstrous lowlife in the galaxy rip him limb from limb. He and his skeletal buddy... Avakian, will use their dark powers to fend off any murder attempts while they search space for whoever put this curse on Sanko's bones, because killing them might end the madness. And then Sanko can celebrate with his favourite spaghetti. So with manga, you read it back to front. You start on what you would think would be the last page and then you read it to what you think would be the front page. I don't know. I just like being in a bookshop and swanning up to the manga... And all these young things looking at me. Actually, they were probably looking at me, thinking, "What on earth is that lunatic doing?" She thinks she's being cool, and she's not. But anyway, in my own little head, I was like, oh, "I'm, I'm still cool. I've still, I can still be cool and down with the young ones." Oh, by just saying that, it's so obvious that I'm not. Anyway, I enjoyed it. I didn't finish it and think I immediately have to get book two. I can't, you know, I can't sleep until book two is in my hands. I didn't think that. But I did, I did enjoy it. It's got the story. It's a bit gruesome in parts. It's funny. It's dark. It's yeah, uh, yeah. I'm I'm up for book two, Die Dark by Hayashida. Hey there we are. And how much of that I've mispronounced? Let's only guess. So anyway, those are your books. I've talked to you long enough. Do I need to do a recap on them? Yes, of course. Let me bend down and pick up the other books. So the books I've reviewed for you today are. The Last Dance by Mark Billingham. And Mark very kindly came on to tell us about that book. Then we had Henry VIII, The Heart and the Crown by Alison Weir. And Alison, also very kindly, came on to talk about that book. I've reviewed Don't Look Back by Joe Spain. The House in the Woods by Mark Dawson. And Die Dark by Hayashida. Those are your books. Some great questions from the Facebook group for those authors. (laughs) Really good. And just look after yourselves. I've got some fantastic books to talk to you about Soon there might be another little special on Friday, a short one. Who knows? If I can get my act together, it'll be there. Who knows? We'll see. Just look after yourselves. I think I need to look after myself today. It's all fine, Philippa. Just keep talking. Be all right. Just look after yourselves, and I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye bye.
2: You've been listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one ever. See you again soon.